Well, let's uh, turn in our Bibles once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 20. So we're turning there. Let's uh, quickly remember what we've covered so far. The issues that Paul has already addressed. He has uh, addressed the problem in Corinth of pride, which has led to division and strife and infighting and uh, the development of uh, party spirit within the congregation of Corinth. That's chapters 1 through 4. In chapter 5, he's addressed the very particular case of sexual immorality by one of the church members there, which ought to have led to the faithful and loving practice of church discipline. Uh, Then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, the Apostle Paul addressed the issue of fellow believers taking one another to court, um, civil court, for trivial reasons, uh, seeking to defraud one another, climb the social ladder there in society. And then as we were already reminded this morning in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 6, the Corinthians had fallen prey to the problem of theological amnesia, or uh, they had, we, we could say, forgotten the gospel and the reality that in their union with Jesus Christ, their, their identity in him ought to have changed their thinking about themselves and how they live from inside out and, and top to bottom. But here we are now in 1 Corinthians six twelve through 20, and Paul's returning to the issue of sexual immorality Um, but of a different sort now. Now Paul is addressing the issue of Corinthian Christians who are going to prostitutes. Uh, You can see the description there in verse 16 of these believers uniting themselves with prostitutes. And I take it to mean that they're going to the temple of Aphrodite where prostitutes did their work. And Corinthian citizens would often go and participate in the services there. And afterwards, there would be, um, well, these uh, illicit relations. And so Paul is uh, writing to address this issue that in Corinth was just par for the course. It was normal, customary, uh, an accepted practice in society. I think we'd all agree that nevertheless, no matter how normal it was in society at the time, It's shocking for us to hear and discover that members of the church in Corinth were engaged in this kind of behavior. And if you look at verses 12 and 13, you'll see that the misbehavior at Corinth actually had deep philosophical and theological roots. Uh, Paul quotes two slogans that the Corinthian Christians used to justify their sexual sins. The first one's there, all things are lawful for me. They said. Now, that sounds like something the Apostle Paul might say, doesn't it? It sounds Pauline. All things are lawful for me. After all, it's the Apostle Paul who has taught Christians in his inspired writings that the Mosaic Covenant and the judicial and ceremonial laws contained therein no longer are binding on the consciences of New Testament, New Covenant believers. But here these Corinthians are taking Paul's teaching to mean that now that they follow Jesus, you know, in a sense, nothing's out of bounds. They were free to do whatever they wanted with their bodies. Now that they're forgiven, nothing 
was out of question. All things, including apparently sex with prostitutes, were lawful for them. But Paul responds in in verse 12, first of all, I say not everything is helpful, maybe even enslaving. All things are lawful for me, they said, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. See, this, this claim that everything is lawful, that I'm free to live as I please, that really falls apart when we begin to trace out the consequences of the choices we make. Their sexual sin, it turns out, was neither helpful nor freeing at all. It was, in fact, a form of slavery. And then secondly, notice the the, the proverb that they used in verse 13. Uh, This is something else the Corinthians would say. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. That is to say, hunger is a bodily appetite, and so when you're hungry, do the natural thing and eat. And in the same way, they reason, sex is merely a bodily appetite, so when you feel like it, go have sex. Really doesn't matter. That was their thinking. It was so common in the culture of their day, and it really had a lot to do with how people thought about the body. See, a good deal of ancient Greek philosophy conceived of the body as a kind of prison house for the soul. Uh, So the soul was held captive, and what, what they ended up doing inevitably then was minimizing the importance of embodied existence. And that prevailing idea led in two seemingly paradoxical directions, depending on which school of thought you belong to. On the one hand... Uh, Some in the culture sought freedom from the prison of the body through asceticism, right? So uh, self-denial, bodily denial, intentionally placing yourself in positions of physical hardship in the hope that somehow that would make your soul more free. But others, and this is how the Corinthians, I think, were thinking, said, okay, well, if the body doesn't matter, what, what really matters is, you know, spiritual things. What really matters is the soul. If the body doesn't matter, then our physical appetites could not be less important. And what I do with my body really doesn't matter. So who cares? Indulge when you're hungry. Eat when your sexual appetites are awakened. Satisfy them. It really doesn't matter. That's how the Corinthians were thinking about bodily existence. And so in verses 12 through 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is seeking to deal with this mistaken thinking. And he's going to lay out five principles about the Christian view of the body that was meant to revolutionize their thinking. Now, just as before, maybe before we get started and really get into the text here, I want to say two things by way of preface. The first thing is this. I, I, hope, I hope that none of us are, are prone to make, making the mistake of thinking that, you know, theology, what we believe, or doctrine is, is really not that important. Maybe, maybe we've heard people say things like, you know, don't give me more theology. Give me, give me the practical stuff. If, if you've ever said anything like that or you're prone to think that way, then let me plead with you to please pay close attention 
to how Paul addresses the issue of sexual immorality among Christians. And he's going to show us, I think, that that he's going to show the Corinthians as well, that, that theology is essentially and inevitably practical in orientation. Some of you will know the the well-known theologian William Perkins, who once defined theology as the science of living blessedly forever. That's what theology is. It's the study of how to live a holy and happy life. And I just want you to keep that in mind today. Tuck that away as we look at how Paul teaches theology to direct Christians in what they do with their bodies. He lays out five foundational Christian doctrines And shows how grasping them will change not only how we think, but what we do. That's the first thing. One more thing, before we look directly at these principles. I think that we need to understand that what Paul has to say here has far-reaching implications. Not just in regard to the specific problem in the church of Corinth of sexual immorality. And so just for one example, in our own day, I think it's safe to say that many people, many of us perhaps struggle with body image issues. We are told by our culture, and perhaps we tell ourselves every day that our body must conform to stereotypes of beauty which are placarded before us on screens and, on, and in magazines. We're told that to be happy, to fit in, to be liked, to be valued, to be desired, that we must look a certain way. And you see, the the idolatry of body image is powerful and prevalent in our day. And it has left in its wake a great deal of shame, of insecurity, of self-loathing, and self-hatred. And I just want to say, if that's something you struggle with, listen, listen to Paul with that concern in mind. Because he's going to show us in this passage how the gospel provides us with a completely different view of the human body. And he will do that not by turning aside from his message, not by offering some sort of psychological analysis of the person. He will do it instead by pressing home the implications of the good news about Jesus Christ. And so here are five principles for thinking theologically about the body. And I'm just going to Give them to you in shorthand now, and then we'll come back and unpack them one by one. And so first, Paul urges as most basic of all, the preeminent importance of the glory of God. The body, he says, is for the Lord. The body is for the Lord. Second, he speaks about the bodily resurrection. Our bodies have an eternal destiny which has implications for how we live right now as embodied creatures. Third, uh, the, the great doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. Paul wants to help us understand that it's not just our souls, it's also our bodies which are united to Jesus. And so what we do in the body, we do in union with Christ. Fourth, The tremendous reality of the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit comes to inhabit us, to live within us. 
in order to make us holy. And then fifth and finally, Paul's going to press home the reality of the the redeeming work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Now, just as I quickly say those five things, I wonder what jumps out at you. Here's what jumps out at me, how basic it all is. This is... This is Christianity 101, isn't it? These are gospel fundamentals. Um, And yet Paul is applying these truths to address the issue of sexual immorality among Christians. He's saying, get these five truths, press them down into your thinking, into your heart, work them out into your life, and you will no longer be led astray by the world's wonky and harmful idea about how you ought to think about the body. Uh, so let's turn, to, let's turn to God's word here, 1 Corinthians 6. But before we do, let's pray and ask for God's help. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning that your word is sufficient, that it speaks to every aspect of our lives. And we thank you that as it does so, it does not take our eyes off of Christ and his redeeming work, but again and again it brings us back to Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised. We pray today that your word would renew our minds and change our lives so that we are more and more conformed to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do that work, we ask, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's hear God's word, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, friends, how you think about your body matters. It matters a great deal. If you think the body is unimportant, you might end up living like the Corinthians. What you do with your body doesn't matter. Just do whatever satisfies you, whatever fulfills you, whatever makes you happy. Or you could err on the other side of things, I guess, and and make too much of the body. Think the body is everything and And then you'll be enslaved to looking a certain way, being perceived a certain way, because you've bought the lie that body image is everything. 
But in contrast to minimizing or idolizing the body, Paul gives us this first truth in verse 13, where first he, he quotes the Corinthians' slogan, food is meant for the body and the stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other, Paul said. But here, here's what he says then, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So again, the Corinthians, the Corinthians were thinking that what they did with their bodies doesn't matter. So if the body wants food, give it food. If the body wants sex, go have sex. It doesn't really matter. It's of no theological or moral significance. Well, Paul says that if that's how we think, if that's how we live, we will discover probably to our shock one day that God will destroy both the body and its appetites. But then he gives us the right perspective. So here's the first doctrinal principle that is meant to reshape how Christians think about the body. Our bodies, he says, are for the Lord. Our bodies, in other words, are for the glory of God. See that very clearly, don't you, in verse 13. Now, some of us may struggle with that. Some of us may really struggle to, to, to believe that because we, we think Christianity is, you know, just intellectual or abstractly spiritual, that our faith really isn't relevant to our bodily existence. But Paul insists that what we do with our bodies, with our eyes, with our mouths, with our hands and our feet, it really matters. God gave us bodies with which to glorify him. We exist embodied for the Lord, for the glory of God. We are with our bodies to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12. And so your body in all of its uniqueness, and yes, with all of its imperfections and frailties and weaknesses, is for the Lord. That is what it's for. Body, believer in Jesus, we need to be reminded it is for him. And that will only intensify later as we think about the redeeming work of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our bodies are designed to glorify him, to please him, to exalt him and give him glory. And so, in contrast to the world's lies that our bodies don't really matter, that we're basically animals governed by appetites, or when the world demands that our bodies conform to a stereotype of beauty, don't you find it, don't you find it liberating to remember that the correct use of the body is for the glory of God, not the satisfaction of disordered appetites or gaining the approval of our peers. See, when our, or when our culture says that our sexual appetites must be met and to do anything less than that is repressive or oppressive, it's actually the path to freedom to realize that our appetites do not have ultimate claim on what we do with our bodies. Jesus Christ does. 
You have a body in order to glorify him. It's for the Lord. That's what your body is for. Then there is the second great doctrine that Paul highlights, which is is the reality of our bodily resurrection. You see it in verse 14. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Our bodies, therefore, have have a destiny, an eternal destiny, not just our souls. See, our future is not a bodiless existence. Our Savior took on flesh and blood to redeem us in body and soul. And so the Christian hope, I hope you understand, the Christian hope is concrete and physical. Ours is an embodied hope. I don't suppose this is something Christians think on enough. In fact, I would would guess that if you were to ask many Christians how they conceive of eternal life, that some image of, you know, angels floating around on clouds playing harps would pop into their minds. But friends, that isn't our future. The, The one who raised Jesus bodily from the tomb did so that he might be the firstborn from among the dead. And the one who raised Jesus bodily will also one day raise us up with him. You see, one day our bodies will be the the mirror of the resurrection glory of the risen Christ. And so you see, the body, it's not a prison in Christian thought. And the body matters because it matters to God. It is not a mere shell housing the soul. The body has a dignity and a glory and an importance given to it by God. Your body, if you are a Christian, is destined for eternity. And so Paul wants us to ask ourselves how we ought to think about our bodies in light of the future, here and now. If God purposes so to dignify them with an eternal future, beautifying and glorifying them one day until they mirror the glory of the resurrected Christ. Can we neglect our bodies now? Should we abuse them or misuse them here and now? Can we pervert them and use them any way we please? No. No. See, the logic of the Apostle Paul here is your body matters to God, and so it ought to matter to you. And so the glory of God, the resurrection of the body, and then third in verses 15 through 18, the the glorious doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. To orient us to this reality, glance down at verse 15, where Paul asks this question, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now let that sink in for a minute. Your body, not just your soul, your body is united to Christ. That has enormous implications. And just one example that comes from our shorter catechism. There's a question in our catechism that asks, the, what are the benefits that believers receive from Christ at their death? And the answer goes something like, believers at their death, their souls go immediately, are perfected in holiness and 
go immediately into the presence of the Lord and their bodies remaining united to Christ rest in the grave until the resurrection. Such is the union bond between Christ and his people that not even death can break it. And think about the significance of this. Think about it in terms of maybe your loved ones who have gone on before you and passed into glory. Their bodies resting in the grave today remain united to Christ. It is a permanent, sacred, mysterious for sure, but indissoluble union. And since he rose bodily from the tomb, so will all who are united to him when he returns on the last day. So that's just one implication of this reality. But take a look at how Paul applies it to the situation in Corinth. This reality of our union with Christ bodily. doesn't mean we're physically united to him right now. We're spiritually united to him. But spiritual doesn't mean somehow less real. That just means by the ministry, the mysterious ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're united to Christ in body and soul. Now take a look at how Paul applies that reality to this issue of sexual immorality. Uh, In verses 15 and 18 through 18, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. I I think you you can push back on this later if you want. I think one of the reasons that a lot of young people who have grown up in the church today go on to reject you know, what we might call the biblical sexual ethic. One of the reasons they do that is because they've been taught the what of Christian belief, but not necessarily the why. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. A lot of folks who've grown up in the church and Christian families who have gone on to reject things later in life, they can tell you Christians believe sex outside of marriage is a sin. That sex, according to Christian belief, is to be enjoyed by one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. But I, I would guess that if you ask most of them, why is that? They'd start scratching their head and say, you know what? I, just cause. That's what Christians believe. Well, please notice in this passage that Paul doesn't just tell us the what. He He tells us the why, why Christians believe that there is no such thing as casual sex. Uh, The quotation from Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one flesh, provides the biblical warrant for sexual expression. And what what it's meant to do is, is establish the union of Adam and Eve in the garden as the template and blueprint for us all. Reminding us, at the very least, that sex is designed by God and it is meant to forge and to express the most profound bond between one woman and man for life within the covenant of marriage. And so sexual union within marriage, Paul is teaching us as he teaches elsewhere, sexual union is is the closest earthly parallel to the union believers have with Jesus Christ 
through faith. And so casual sex and adultery are profound distortions and misuses of the body because they are deviations from God's created purpose for marriage and sex, which is to point to the eternal union between Christ and his bride, the church. And so Paul even uses the same verb in verse 17 to describe our connection to Christ that he uses to describe in verse 16 the illicit connection some Corinthians had with prostitutes. He talks about being joined, or as one commentator said, glued together. And he's raising the question, how can a Christian who is glued to Christ, joined to him, body and soul, lightheartedly join himself to a prostitute? How can a Christian join himself with a non-Christian? How can two Christians treat sexual union as a night of disposable entertainment when it has such sacred symbolism and meaning? You see, if you're, if you're a Christian, what, what Paul is saying in this passage to believers, it is, it's, it's one of those passages where it's in your face. Paul is speaking in, in very provocative terms. He is saying, dear believer, you take Jesus with you into your sex life. You, you, dear Corinthians, you need to understand that when you go to the temple of Aphrodite, you can't say, Jesus, just, just hang out here outside while I go in and then pick him up on the way back out. Well, let's make that more contemporary. You can't say to Jesus when you're going into your bedroom to look at things on your screen that you shouldn't be looking at. Jesus, just wait out here in the hallway and I'll meet you when I'm all done. Now, Paul is saying that what you do in the body, dear Christian, you do in union with Christ. You drag Jesus into this. Sexual sin is profoundly dishonoring to Jesus. But notice that Paul also says, if you look again at verse 18, that it's also defiling to us. And so he says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but, sexu- but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sin, sexual sin involves our whole selves. It involves our bodies as well as our minds, our hearts, our souls. And so as someone has put it, I thought this was a helpful way of putting it, because sex is uniquely body joining. When we abuse it, it is also uniquely body defiling. And so our bodies matter because our body is for the Lord. Our bodies matter because they have an eternal destiny and because our bodies are united to Jesus Christ. And then fourth, our bodies, Paul teaches us, are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. This is another tremendous doctrine, incredible reality, the the reality of the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ. So take a look at verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Now, some of you might remember back in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul spoke about the church together, the church corporate, 
as the dwelling place of the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God inhabits the covenant community and constitutes it as the temple of God. But here Paul is thinking of individual Christians and is is saying, you individual believer, the Spirit of the living God, the Spirit of Christ takes up his dwelling in you. Not just in your soul, but in your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus inhabits believers, each one of us. And that makes our bodies, as it were, sacred space. So you think, I wonder, do you, do you think that way about your body as, as a Christian, as a sacred space? Not because of something special and unique about you, but because God himself the person of the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Think about all the imagery of the, the temple and the tabernacle before it in the Old Testament where the Spirit of God would take up his dwelling among God's people and how all of that was associated with that, that, that holy space being consecrated, being holy, being dedicated to the Lord. Paul wants us to have that in our thinking when we are thinking about our bodies. Because the Spirit has come to take up residence in us. So shouldn't that, shouldn't that reality change how we behave? What we do with our bodies? And, and in that light, I think we'd all agree that this is, a, this is a profoundly challenging truth. When we think of all the ways that we have misused and even abused our own bodies and the bodies of other fellow believers. But I suspect we could all use a lot of encouragement at this point. So I also want to think about this from another perspective. Think about how encouraging this reality is as well. Because we are, we are called in Christ to a new way of life. But if we were called to that new, of, new way of life and had to de- depend on nothing other than our own resources to live that way, my friends... We would be doomed for failure, wouldn't we? We'd never get off the ground. We'd never make any headway. We'd be in big, big trouble. Were we to seek to live a pure life and use our bodies well and engage in the conflict with indwelling sin by our own energy and our own strength, we would fail every single time. There'd be absolutely no hope whatsoever. But one of the things Paul is reminding us is this. That is not the case for the Christian, is it? No, the spirit of Jesus Christ dwells in us to give us strength, not just in our minds, but even in our bodies. So that instead of them being instruments for unrighteousness, they might increasingly become instruments used by the Lord for his glory. See, the spirit of the living God, Paul is reminding us, dwells in you, in your body. So there is hope for you, dear brother and and dear sister. You are not a slave to your desires. Some of us need to hear that. You are not a slave to your disordered desires. You are not a slave to your indwelling sin and disordered appetites. 
Yes, yes, sometimes the battle is fierce. And sometimes, and sadly often, we will stumble and fall. But because he dwells in us, there is hope for the likes of you and me. Because he is in us at work to change us and to conform us to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's the, there's the glory of God, the resurrection of the body, union with Christ, the indwelling of the Spirit. And then fifth and finally, the redemption Christ accomplished at the cross. Take a look at verses 19 and 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. It's right to say, I think, isn't it, that perhaps the defining notion for a lot of people in our culture today is this idea of, what do we want to call it? I don't know, personal autonomy, self-governance, the freedom to define ourselves, to identify ourselves however we please, the the freedom to, to make ourselves into a unique individual. And we have taken that so-called freedom of self-governance to an entirely new level in our own day, haven't we? To, to the point where we are told that a person can self-identify across, I mean, for, forget gender binary, forget male and female. Now a person can identify across a gender spectrum without any regard for their biological sex. I mean, when you think about it, It really is another form of the message, isn't it? Your body doesn't matter. It's a denigration of the dignity of the human body. Because what really matters is how you feel. right? What what really matters is what's on the inside in such a way that what's on the outside, what's visible, needs to be brought into conformity with the feelings on the inside. So now you can match your body to how you feel. Today, a person is who they determine or define themselves to be. We invent ourselves. We identify who we are. But friends, let's let's make sure we understand this, that that way of thinking is diametrically opposed to how the gospel trains us to think about ourselves. That way of thinking is diametrically opposed to how the gospel trains us to think about ourselves. Why? Because one of the first things that the gospel teaches us is that we are not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We are not free to invent ourselves or define ourselves or to identify ourselves however we please however right it might feel to do so for ourselves. And that is because, in reality, we belong to Jesus Christ. Because we have been redeemed. Now, this language of redemption, it's language borrowed from the slave market in the ancient world. And Paul is saying that while we might brag about our so-called freedom, the truth is we are slaves to the very things that we think demonstrates our liberty. We think it a freedom to define ourselves when in fact 
we are enslaved to the very things we identify with. Sexual sin in particular we're seeing here enslaves, it debases, it dehumanizes, it objectifies other people and robs them of their dignity. But we who are by nature slaves to sin, when we became Christians better yet, when we were made to be Christians by the sovereign grace of God, we were brought into a different kind of slavery. Jesus redeemed us with his own blood at the cross, meaning he he purchased us and brought us under his rule where we find true freedom. He brought us into his household and now we live under his rule. So that means we are not at liberty to live as we please. We are not at liberty to use our bodies as if they were our own to do with as we choose. Because Christ gave up his liberty. He was shackled and beaten and bruised and crucified. He paid a terrible price. A terrible price. The wrath and curse of God poured out upon him for all of our sin. For all of my sin, for all of our sexual sin. It was paid for in full by him for you. And so, believers in Christ, Paul is reminding us here, you belong to Jesus, body and soul. He redeemed you. He purchased you. He bought you for himself. Therefore, and this is a big therefore, isn't it? Therefore, glorify God with your body. You are his who gave his body to redeem you and buy you out of slavery to make you his. So glorify, honor him bodily. And so my friends, let's learn to think this way about ourselves more and more. This defining reality of the Christian life, you don't belong to you. You you who trust in Christ, you are his. So he's in charge now. Paul is calling us to, to bend the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Where we find true liberty, true freedom, and true blessedness. You see what we said at the start? William Perkins was right, wasn't he? That theology truly is the science of living blessedly forever. It's the way to live a holy and happy life. And by the way, those two things go hand in hand, don't they? Holiness and happiness. And just one final word before we close. Because the reality is we live... We live in a time, don't we, when on the one hand, we're sexual sinners. On the other hand, we we also ought to recognize that that many of us are, are victims of our time and our culture. We're a mess when it comes to sexual sin. And perhaps you're here and you, maybe, maybe you feel crushed by the weight of your sexual sin. Maybe the the shame of it all 
just overwhelms you. You, you know, you know you've misused your body. You know you've abused it. You know you've misused others. You've treated sex like it's no big deal. You have indulged the flesh again and again and again to the point where it just seems completely irresistible. All I want to say to you today is see that in Jesus there is, there is forgiveness. There is redemption. Meaning that there is freedom from sin and shame and liberty and a new life where your body is for the Lord. And one day will be raised together with him. A body that is united to Jesus Christ both now and forever. And dwelt by the spirit of Christ that has been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And so the call of this passage for all of us is to repent and turn and trust in Christ. By the strength and power of the Holy Spirit of Christ within us, glorify God with your body. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we do confess that we've, we've failed here. We've failed to glorify you with our bodies. Instead, we've often used them as instruments of disobedience and rebellion. And so help us now, we pray, to live in light of the reality that Jesus Christ has redeemed us. And we pray that we would give back ourselves to the one who has given his all for us. Train us and teach us and empower us to live as bodily creatures to your glory in all that we think, in all that we say, and in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.